Hey, I'm the Mighty Manfred, and we are set to have our coolest conversations. And on the line with me today, Rob Lind, saxophone player from the legendary garage rock and roll band, The Sonics. How are you, Rob? I'm doing great. Nice to talk to you. Oh, thanks. Well, did you ever, did you ever in your wildest imagination think that when the Sonics ended in the late 1960s, you would be rocking the world some 40 years later again? No, absolutely not. It really uh, never entered my mind. <laughs> well, how does it feel to be a rock and roll legend? Oh, I don't know about the <laughs> I don't know about the legend part. It's humbling. It's gratifying. It's uh, you know, it just sort of it just sort of happened by itself. It was nothing that was planned or anticipated. It's sort of uh, we sort of eased into it. Well, I've heard a story I'm hoping that uh, you can share with our listeners, and it involves you piloting a small charter jet and finding out that not only were there still Sonics fans many years later on, but they included some rock and roll royalty. Oh, I assume you're probably, uh, I assume you're probably talking about uh, uh, Bruce and Patty, but I also flew Sting and I flew picked up the Beach Boys in Chicago and uh, flew them out to Cedar Rapids for a show. Because now, uh, the company that I flew for sh flew showbiz types. But yeah, I had the good fortune to fly Bruce and Patty across the United States. Well, in that case, um, he knew about, the, were you surprised that he knew about the Sonics? Well, it's kind of an interesting story because he did a, he and the E Street Band did a show in Seattle and during the show, he said, um, okay, we're going to do a song by the Sonics, and I'm not talking about the basketball team. <laughs> and then he did Have Love Will Travel. And that uh, was a nice thing for him to say, a nice thing for him to do in our hometown. And uh, it got back to me. And uh, so consequently, when I had the opportunity to chat with him at 37,000 feet the, <laughs> <laughs> out over the middle of the country, um, I thanked him for that and uh, I guess sort of took him by surprise. Cool. Well, yeah, rock and roll royalty, the uh, Bruce Springsteen, but, uh, you know, from Robert Plant to the White Stripes, the Hives, uh, a lot of. Uh, older and contemporary bands, uh, you know, worshiping at the at the altar of, of the Sonics. Um, let's talk about you for a moment, though. You play saxophone, and to me, that's the missing link in rock and roll. Nowadays, it seems to be pretty extremely, well, extremely rare to find a contemporary band with a sax. Uh, why do you play saxophone? Well, I'm just lucky, I guess. Uh, back in the 60s, there were a lot of rock and roll bands in the Pacific Northwest where I grew up. And in order to be in a, every rock and roll band, every single one of them, maybe with the exception of the Ventures, who were from our hometown, had a sax. And so um, I was a clarinet player. I played clarinet from the time I was a little kid up into high school. And so rock and roll started happening. I wanted to get on the rock and roll train with the rest of the guys. So I, I started figuring out how to play tenor sax. And I've done it ever since, and I'm real comfortable with it. Now, I had a question from an interviewer in Europe where we just returned from, and he put it a different way. He said, well, how do, how do you feel now that saxophones are dead <laughs> in rock and roll? I said, well, wait a second. <laughs> you know, 
the Rolling Stones used a sax player in every one of their live shows. Um, Bruce, Spring, uh, Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band, they had Clarence Clemens for years, and now they have a gentleman. Jay Clemens is next. Yeah, that's really yeah. neat. That's a, that's a neat thing. But a lot of people, not a lot, but saxophones are used. Delbert McClinton has got a sax player that's one of my uh, personal heroes. I love listening to Delbert McClinton's sax player. So it's not in every band like it used to be, but there are a few of us around. And what do you what do you think of the what is the role of the saxophone in a rock and roll band? What, what are you covering? Well, I don't know. It's different depending on who's doing it. I can tell you what the role of the saxophone in the Sonics is. Well, what is it? Um, it, it is to provide a little bit more bottom. It's it's a little stronger than a second guitar would be. Mm-hmm. I play down in the low notes. I play the riffs. Yeah. And as you know, Manfred, the Sonics are basically just like the Hives. Uh, we're a riff-based rock and roll band. Most of the songs we do are riffs or pretty close to it. And, and a lot of our originals, Psycho, The Witch, Strict Nine, on and on, they're riffs. And so I get on those riffs and play them all the way through just like I was you know, playing another guitar or something. I've seen sax players that are solo-oriented. They'll stand back by the drummer until it's time for a solo, then they'll step up and play the solo and step back. I do that, of course, but I play all the time, all the way through the songs. And it, with within those riff-based songs that we play, it just adds a little bit more strength to the riff. It makes it a little bit stronger, a little bit more powerful. That's right. The song, the songs are definitely powerful. Now, from what I understand, guitarist Larry Prepa, he'd been playing uh, with some folks in Tacoma, uh, calling himself the Sonics before you joined the band. But when you joined, you came along with keyboard player Jerry Rosalie and drummer Bob Bennett. Is that right? That's exactly right. Uh, Andy and Larry were in a little band that they called the Sonics, and and uh, Jerry, Bobby, and I were in a band called the Imperials, I think is who it was. And we saw them play somewhere, and we said, you know, if we got together with those two brothers, we'd have a pretty, uh, we'd have a pretty tough band. And ultimately, that happened. Well, let's see. And then you guys got were together. You put out uh, three albums, and by the late '60s, oh, you you called it quits. Why did it take you till 2007 to reform the band? Well, that's a really excellent question, and the answer to that is we were all in other uh, other careers and pursuits at the time, and I hadn't really thought about getting back into music. And we started getting pressed by a promoter from New York City that uh, wanted us to come up and play the, the uh, Cave Stomp Festival. And it started in 2005, and he called Larry, and Larry you know, he said, well, we'd like you guys to come play this festival. And Larry said, well, well that's impossible. We don't play. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. And so he persisted. In 2006, he tried again. Larry told him the same thing. And then Larry, Jerry, and I started talking by phone because I was here in North Carolina working for U.S. Airways. And we thought, well, okay, maybe we should get together and play a little bit. Larry hadn't played guitar in years. I hadn't played sax in years. 
we had to practice a lot. So I was on a lot of airplanes flying up to Seattle, spent three days up there rehearsing with the guys and just learning how to play together again. And uh, he hit on us again for the 2007 show, which is in November, which was November of 2007. And we said, well, okay, here's the deal. We'll work towards that. We can't tell you yes or no right now, but we'll tell you as we get closer. And then the three of us, adults now and being a little bit more mature, Uh, made the decision, okay, I'll tell you what, we know that the Sonics have a legacy and the Sonics have a history. So we don't want to blow that. We don't want to injure that. So here's the deal. Let's just agree that as we get close to doing that show, if we can do it and do it reputably, we can do it. But if not, let's look at each other in a clear-eyed manner and say, nah, we don't want to go up there and embarrass our legacy and also we don't want to we don't want to be the kind of a band that comes back from not playing for 35 or 40 years and then people come see you and they they're disappointed you know like oh god this is sad i remember when those guys used to be good we absolutely don't want to do that so if it comes to that let's not do it so we took him it was almost thanksgiving and uh i think we made it to October. He was calling us about every week. Larry kept telling him, no, we can't tell you yet. So we got down to within about a month of it. And we said, yeah, I think we can do it. So we told him, sure, we can do it. We'll come back to New York. And, and, and so we did, consequently. And I went back and uh, played two shows, the Friday night show, the Saturday night show. And when we did that, then things started happening. The next Wednesday, we got a call from London, and they said, hey, we have two sold-out shows for you. Can you guys come over and do them? Well, <laughs> the farthest, <laughs> we, you know. So, so who do we have to they, build to they do that? These, so we got they, on an airplane, and we've been doing it ever since. And so, Rob, the thing from England, though, you got they, they went ahead and sold out a couple of shows and said, oh, by the way, if you guys are, would like to play uh, some more shows, we've already sold them out for you. Yeah, actually, what he said was, we uh, we booked a show for you guys at the Forum in Kensington, part of London, which is a big venue, and he said it sold out immediately, so we put another one up the next night, it sold out too, and we're sure hoping you guys can come over and play these. You know? <laughs> we, were, <laughs> we thought that was wonderful, we'd never been out of the States before, with the exception of my military service. So we never played Europe. So yeah, we we practically would have uh, gotten a rowboat and rowed over there for the opportunity to do that. And a lot of people from Europe came to see us from different countries, and they started calling our manager. And next thing you know, we're on tour over there, and we've done one or two European tours every year since then, <laughs> including three days ago. We just returned from uh, three and a half weeks over there. Wow. So yeah. So getting back together in two thousand seven, and since then, you know, playing playing the world a number of times. Yeah. And um, of course, that led up to uh, recording a, a new album. Uh, and before we started talking, we took a listen to Bad Betty off of that record called "This Is the Sonics." Jim Diamond produced the album, and uh, though it's you know a newer album, it still retains a lot of the elements that make the Sonics the Sonics: the production rawness and performances. 
I think, on par with the uh, the earlier stuff. As you were putting that all together, was there a lot of apprehension about whether you would live up to the band's legacy? You talked about being able to perform and not disappoint people. Must have been a lot of pressure for the album. What was going on in y'all's minds? Well, um, no, actually, Manfred, we were pretty confident. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't say that in an overblown way, but we'd been playing constantly for seven or eight years before we did the yeah. album. And and I started actually thinking um, we're getting a little stale because we're doing basically the same set, you know, and and I started feeling the need for something new. And one thing led to another. And Yeah, let's maybe work on an album. And our manager at the time said, well, if you guys are going to do an album, you need Jim Diamond to produce it. I didn't know who that was. I had to look him up on, on, uh, I had to Google him to find out actually who he was. And that was the smartest decision we, we ever made because he came out to Seattle. We brought him out two weeks before we were going to go in the studio. We rehearsed every night and he was at every rehearsal and he just took notes on a legal pad. And we, you know, you've made albums and it was the same thing. We, laid out a bunch of songs and he picked the ones that he thought were appropriate for the album and disregarded the others. Mm-hmm. And his, his mission statement, if you will, was he said, what we want to do here is we want to recapture the fire and the energy of your first two albums without absolutely copying them. Right. So he kept, he kept everybody's uh, focus right on the correct way to do this album. And it's the first time we'd ever use a producer because we produced the other ones ourselves when we were kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, Jim was right in everything that he tried to do. I, I think he did a wonderful job. I totally credit that album to him. We played it, of course, and we wrote some of the songs that weren't covers, um, but and we arranged everything. Yeah, But he was... Uh, he was the MIC. He was the man in charge, and he did a great job. Well, so last year, you had a record store day release, The Sonics Live at Easy Street, documenting you know, your your live sound. Freddie Dennis is playing bass on that for certain, and he's been in the band now yeah, since 2009. Yeah, we had a couple people, couple people sit in, uh, sat in, but yeah, Freddie's been playing bass now for, gosh, I don't know, man, for six or seven years. He's been right. with us for a long time. And now he, but he wasn't in the band in the '60s. But he was from that same Tacoma, uh, Seattle scene. Played in the Liverpool Five, and at some point the Kingsmen. What's the story about uh, Freddie joining? How did you guys uh, reach out and find Freddie? Well, Larry knew him, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Larry had played in a little bar band with Freddie called Freddie and the Screamers. Freddie was in a lot of bar bands in the Pacific Northwest. That, that's kind of what he did. And he was a well-known, very well-known bar band musician, good singer, could sing anything, and he still can. Yeah. Um, And so we were in need of a bass player. Uh, Don Wilhelm had been playing bass with us to start off with, and uh, the travel got to be too much. So we had to uh, joint decision between us and Don, and we had to find somebody else. uh, Larry knew Freddie. They were pretty good friends. And uh, he brought Freddie to a rehearsal one day, and we did a couple songs with Freddie, and went, "Whoa, there it is! It was that. It was that easy." Well, I got to tell you, man, my opinion on Freddie is that he is gold. I mean, he uh, his singing is just so killer, and 
if uh, Jerry Rosalie can't be out with you guys on the road, uh, Freddie is right there. I mean, he sounds so great. And during the set, though, we should point out that uh, you guys trade off lead vocals with other members. And uh, let's talk about those guys for a minute. Evan Foster on lead guitar. He also plays in the Boss Martians. How did you uh, get a hold and uh, come to find uh, Evan? Well, Evan and Jake were both easy. Um, we did a, we were really dumb to do it. I mean, I have to admit this. We, we did a five week tour of Europe and, uh, it was exhausting and it, uh, flattened Jerry. It was just too much. And we came back and, uh, short time later, uh, Jerry said, I, I just can't do this anymore. I, I can't take it. So we needed to find a uh, somebody to replace him. Over time, uh, Jerry sang a little bit less than he had done, and Freddie was filling in. So mm-hmm. Freddie was doing probably as much lead singing as Jerry was while Jerry was in the band. And so, you know, Freddie is a you can do kind of guy. I said, Freddie, um, here's what we're looking at. Can you handle the load? And he said, sure. Yeah, great. Okay, let's go. You know, that's the way Freddie is. And, uh, yeah, he did just fine. We knew Evan. We've known Evan for some time because he was from Tacoma initially. And he was playing with a little band from the Northwest, uh, as you mentioned, the Boss Martians. Uh, we did the tour with Robert Plant. We actually did two tours with Robert. We did half a tour. Uh, when the uh, the Posies dropped out of a tour that they were on with him, mm-hmm. he called us. We went up and finished the tour. I think we did four or five shows. And he asked us back for a full tour, and we did that. Larry played that. And at the end of that tour, we were going to go to Australia for three weeks. Wow. And that's that was the end of the line for Larry. So I don't want to another 14 hour plane ride. (laughs) So Larry stepped out. So we knew Evan and we knew Jake. I didn't, Jake was in a Los Angeles band called the Lords of Altamont. And we knew them. They were kind of a biker stick band and very good, but uh, they had opened for us in in Europe about three times, once in Berlin, once in Belgium, and also in the States, and then when we played L.A., Jake came by himself and came up and sat in and did He's Waiting With Us. So we knew Jake. So it wasn't like you would think. It wasn't like, okay, this this guy is a good guitar player. Um, let's hire him, and then we'll teach him how to play Sonic songs. Those guys both knew before they got there. They loved Sonic's material, thankfully. They knew all the stuff. Um, Evan particularly, Jake is a wonderful keyboard player. He is just a great keyboard player. And so he makes everything very easy. We took a show in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Santiago, Chile. We had to fly all the way down. We did that one. We flew all the way down to Santiago. We rented a rehearsal hall down there. We'd never played with the five of us together. So we thought, we're going to do this big outdoor festival in Santiago. So we rented a rehearsal, went down early, rented a rehearsal hall. And we started playing, I don't know, Strychnine or something. 
and and two minutes into the first song we played with those guys, it was just click, and it was easy. It was totally easy. There was no teaching them how to play. They knew the songs before they got there. They knew how to play them, and, and it was effortless. I mean, we were really lucky. I have to say we were very lucky with those two guys. Well, I have to tell you from this end, and we're very familiar with those guys here in the underground garage, uh, as Evan, you know, being the main man of the Boss Martians, and Jake fronting the Lords of Altamont, both those bands, part of our uh, part of our playlist for many for many years. And then, now, the foundation of any rock band, to me, is the drummer. Got the guy slapping the traps, and you got Dusty Watson, and he's played with all sorts of rock and roll royalty, especially Kings, while he's played behind the King of the Surf guitar, Dick Dale, as well as the King of the Fuzz guitar, Davey Allen. How did you how did you wind up with uh, Dusty? We first met Dusty in in Italy in a festival way up in the mountains. We were going to close the festival, play the last night, and we got there a couple of days early to acclimate. And the surf band that none of us had ever heard of called Slacktone was going to play. And so Freddie and our manager at the time, Buck Ormsby, said, well, we'll go out to the festival. We'll watch some of the bands. Uh, Larry and I and Jerry stayed at, there's a <laughs> real nice sidewalk cafe, and the beer was good, so we decided to stay there. And those guys came back from the festival and said, oh, goodness, you should have seen the drummer we just saw. He would be perfect for the Sonics. And I said, God, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that uh, I missed that. So the next day we're having lunch, and uh, a couple of the guys, Dave and and Dusty from uh, Slacktone, walked up and introduced themselves. And uh, so I, that's the first time I met Dusty, and I chatted with him. Later on, a year later or something, we did a show that, that you and the Woggles are intimately familiar with, Ink and Iron, down at the, uh, at, at the Queen Mary in Long Beach. And I just happened to be wandering around uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and there was a band setting up was going to play on the grass out there by the, by the car show. Uh-huh. So I walked over there and hands in my pockets. I wonder who these guys are. And I saw Dusty was playing with them. And uh, so I stood and watched. I was totally, I, I base everything. I based everything as far as drummers were concerned on Bob Bennett. Right. I wanted that single stroke roll, heavy kick. Um, with the drummer we had at the time, he was quite a good drummer, but he was more like a jazz drummer. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were missing an ingredient that wasn't really working. And I saw Dusty, and I I was standing there with our sound man at the time, Jim Anderson, and Jim told me later, he said, you kept elbowing me and saying, that's Bob Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> and so I watched their whole set, and he came off the stage and came right over to me, and, and he said, yeah, I saw you standing out there, and I said, well, gee, I, I really like what you're doing. Um, would you ever be interested in playing drums in the Sonics? And he said, I'd do it tomorrow. So he gave me his, gave me his, his card and I took it home and put it in my sock drawer. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> later on, uh, our drum situation started to degrade and Larry and I are thinking, no, we've got to, we've got to handle this. We're going to have to find somebody else. And, and, uh, I thought, boy, I think I know just the guy. And I went home and rummaged around through my sock drawer and found Dusty's card. 
and called him up and uh, we set up a we set up a uh, rehearsal in Seattle and, with him and a couple other guys, really good guys. Mike Musburger came up and and uh, played with us, and Dusty came in and played with us, and it was down to those two guys. Yeah. And you know Dusty, you know he he can do anything. He he's primarily a surfer, surf drummer, but he's so good that he know he knows what the Sonics' legacy was. He heard all our old records. He knew, and then I talked to him a lot about the philosophy of it. Not so much cymbal, more on single stroke snare rolls, a lot of heavy kick. Um, and he just snapped right in. And he's been here the next longest before, uh, I mean, behind Freddie. And the other two guys, we call those guys the new guys for some reason because. <laughs> Jake and Evan, I think they've been with us now going almost two years. And since that time, and even before since you performed, you've been making up for the, that 40-year absence by playing all over the world. And uh, uh, tomorrow, Saturday, you're playing in the Nashville Boogie in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. But tonight, you're in Charlotte. That's your hometown, playing at the Neighborhood Theater. Uh, any family and friends in Charlotte remember you in the Sonics? <laughs> that's an interesting question yeah my my son is i'm a 30 year old son robbie he's over the moon he he actually came he was going to san diego state and he saw us for the first time at ink and iron and was he was my sax tech you know you want your sax dad uh well yeah robbie that'd be good okay i'll go get it for you you know it's kind of like that and he saw us uh, when we played at uh, Irving Plaza in New York as well. He was up there on a business trip and came to the show. So, yeah, everybody pretty much is a lot of friends. I, I, I'm, I can tell you as one musician to another, this is the first time we've played here in Charlotte, which is my my hometown now. I can say that because I've lived here for 27 years. I'm a little nervous about it. Um, just because of that reason, the Sonics are going to go in there and do what we always do. The Sonics are going to go in there and blow the place up. There's no question about it. <laughs> my, my worry is I did an interview with the editor of uh, Creative Loafing before I left for Europe, and uh -huh. I made that statement to him. I said, well, we're pretty well known in Atlanta. We're pretty well known in Nashville. We've never played Charlotte, and I'm not sure how the Charlotte club scene rock and roll fans know anything about the sonics at all i'm a little concerned that we're going to be you know playing for my son and his buddies <laughs> and that'll essentially be it and he said oh no i think you're going to be surprised and uh well i'm hopeful about that and i'm really looking forward to it but i, I have a little bit of uh butterflies about doing it we just have to channel that energy into uh, going through uh, going through the reed and out through the sacks, and it'll be killer. <laughs> well, so the Nashville Woggles, the Woggles are a high energy band, and I've seen you guys a number of times. And you guys are pros, and the Sonics are pros, and we look at things the same way. My my concept, as long as as well as the other guys in the band, it doesn't make any difference if there's five people there or twenty five thousand. We play the same. When, when we walk out on stage and start Cinderella as our first song, we're going to go for it. And it doesn't make any difference 
if the place is jam-packed like it's been in Europe for the last three weeks, or, or not. We're going to do the same show, the same energy, and we're going to come off stage soaking wet and looking for a bottle of water um, <laughs> exactly the same, just like you guys do. Well, thanks, Rob. I appreciate that. And yeah, I share that that same uh, perspective. You know, the Saturday show, the tomorrow show, the Nashville Boogie, uh, they're in Nashville. You know, typically they feature rockabilly, country, and roots rock stuff. And this year, for the first time, they've added their garage rock uh, day. Um, now, when you were playing originally, the band was playing. There wasn't anything called garage rock. When did you become aware that you are now considered a garage rock band? And what does that even mean to you? Well, you know, it really didn't mean anything because same thing with punk rock. Um, they were they were adjectives that uh, people came up with twenty five or thirty years later. Right. It was kind of meaningless. We kind of, it was kind of head scratching for us because to begin with, we never played in a garage. We never <laughs> rehearsed in a garage. We used to rehearse in Bob Bennett's mom and dad's basement. So I wasn't, we weren't quite sure what the garage thing meant. And when we were playing back in the 60s, we just considered ourselves a rock and roll band. Right. There were, I, I make this distinction all the time. Um, there are two main cities there, Tacoma and Seattle. Seattle, big urban city, and Tacoma's a waterfront blue-collar city. Our dads were all blue-collar guys. The Seattle bands were very good, but they were more, I want to say, jazz-oriented or musicianship-oriented. They were, you know, guitar playing harmony with a sax and, and a lot more swingy, a lot more shuffly kind of things. And down in Tacoma, we just wanted to rock. We wanted to play Little Richard. We wanted to come out on stage and punch you in the gut, you know. Um, and so that's what we were doing. And, and as we began to play in front of people, it became obvious to us that the crowds in those days wanted to rock. Those were dances in those days, not not shows like they are now. People people were there to dance and, and meet girls and you know, etc. And people wanted to get out there and start dancing. Well, we were totally behind that. So everything that rocked that we found, we played. You know, the British invasion came out and the and the Beatles were, you know, doing all their wonderful music. Well, we weren't doing Norwegian Wood. We were doing Drive My Car, Dizzy Miss Lizzie, uh, Slow Down, the Larry Williams. We did the rock. We, we cherry-picked the rock songs. Right. And so then the, the big landslide for us was when the Kinks showed up with You Really Got Me. Mm -hmm. We'd never heard of the Kinks. And, and the first time we heard that record... We thought, geez, those bridges, they're just like us. They play nasty, hard rock and roll just like us. And uh, we've we got the opportunity to tour with them. And uh, consequently, uh, leading up to, we put the song The Heart, on, which Ray Davies wrote um, on the, that album that you and I were discussing earlier, This Is The Science. But yeah, all we wanted to be was a rock and roll band. We wanted to play hard rock and roll and by hard rock and roll you know what i mean i'm not talking about um metal which hadn't been invented yet or or psychedelic which was starting to show up there were bands up there daily flash and 
that were playing, you know, like the Bill Graham, uh, Fillmore, San Francisco light show stuff. Some of the guys were doing that. We didn't want any part of that. We wanted four, four, one, four, five rock and roll music. And that's what we, that's what we majored in. Not head music, but gut music. Yeah. Yeah. I was an airline pilot. That, that's an all encompassing career that eats you up. It's, it's concentration and study all the time so i liked music i'd always been a musician i listened to music i I hadn't heard the garage or the punk thing until larry and jerry and i started rehearsing and uh and hearing those kinds of things and we were educated we met the hives in new york i'd never heard of them i didn't know who they were um i struck up a friendship with nick omquist a guitar player and we've been, we're friends to this day. Our friendship has lasted since 2007. They kind of educated us a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, people in interviews would say, hey, well, do you know that, uh, do you know that the Stooges did one of your songs? I don't know. I don't know who the Stooges are. You know, what do you think about the Cramps? You know, I, I don't know who that is. Well, what about MC5? I'm sorry. I've never heard of those guys. You know, it, it, it was a learning process. We were just naive. Larry had been working in the insurance world and Jerry was doing something else. And so we kind of came upon it late. And so over time, I, I'm well aware now that we've been playing since 2007 pretty steadily. I'm well aware of that. But at the time, I didn't know anything. I didn't know any of that stuff. Well, two things I want to say here. One, uh, I think it's so cool you're a pilot and you talk about having to fly all these different places. And uh, I think that is great because if I had you sitting next to me in the seat, I'd be like, all right, if there's any problem with this plane, because, you know, planes and rock bands, sometimes they don't go together very well. I'd say, Rob, head on up in the cockpit and take care of this. But the, uh, <laughs> the, the, yeah. but the, the second thing um, – you mentioned uh, you, when you guys back in the 60s were playing these these dances and, and people are wanting to move, you know, and the kids would come there to meet each other and to have a good time. And you're picking out these songs that um, would get people uh, moving. And uh, I, I just love the all these sort of uh, the stuff you guys have covered from, you know, back then, even and up, up to the uh, most recent studio album. This is the Sonics uh, songs that really, I think, are complementary to your own uh, your own originals. You know, The Witch, Cinderella's Waiting, Psycho. Uh, you know, did, you did uh, Have Love Will Travel, a bunch of Little Richard songs. You mentioned that a version of the Waver's Dirty Robber, you know, Rufus Thomas Walking the Dog, Hitchhike. And off of This is the Sonics great covers as well uh my favorite the song i want us to go out with is i don't need no doctor first done by ray charles now that song were you doing that back in the 60s as part of uh, your sets or um yeah we were yeah well we did we have a word that we use in in the band between the five of us and that's sonic eyes (laughs) which basically means Let's take the cover, um, Sugary, that's on this This Is The Sonics album. We played that back in the 60s, but it, 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 ha- it, it had a riff that didn't work for me um, today. Mm-hmm. The riff was, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Got a letter from my babe, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Right. That didn't work. I liked the idea. I came in with the idea of doing two nasty chords. Mm-hmm. Um, 
like is on the album. So we did that and, and recorded the song that way. So when we think about a cover, the first thing we think of, and that's where we use that invented word, can we sonicize this? <laughs> can we make this our own? If we can, we'll, you know, we'll give it a shot and we'll, we'll, we'll work on it a little bit. And, we'll, you know, we all are so in sync with each other. You don't even really have to say anything. You look at each other across the room and say, nah, this isn't going to work. Let's drop it and move on, and and that's what we do. And and things like that, and and uh, look at Little Sister is another. I like a fast shuffle. Other bands have done that back in the sixties. Um, most notably, Stevie Ray Vaughan did it, but he did it much slower. And uh, so we looked at that. We used that. You know, that awful word came up. Can we sonicize this? Can we make this rock? Yeah, and we did, and we put it on the album. We play it every night. But that's what we look at. We might look at, a, you know, there's some old songs we're looking at, like Justine. A lot of people haven't heard that. You probably have. Right, the Don and Dewey song. Can, yeah, exactly. Can we sonicize that? Can we make that rock? What about, you know, we're, we're doing originals. We, we we do a, as you know, we do a mix of originals and covers. If we like it and it rocks, we might do it. We're, we're looking at uh, Isabella that the Whalers used to do. Oh yeah, that's can a great. We modernize answer. that. Can we sonicize it? Oh, I can um, hear Freddie singing it. I can hear him in my oh, head. Oh yeah, it's perfect and, for and, that. Well, let me ask you then. You're talking about sonicizing, sonic. What do you say? How do you say it? Sonicizing. Sonicizing, yeah. Sonicizing songs. And uh, covers and talking about, uh, you know, coming up with a newer original material. When can we look forward to another full-on uh, Sonics uh, full-length platter? Well, actually, I wanted to get to work on it this fall, and we wound up getting booked all the way to January. So I had to kind of put the kind of put the brakes on that. So right now we're talking about doing different songs um, and, and compiling a list that maybe we can get together and work on. Fly, I'll fly up to Seattle and Evan and Freddie and I'll get together for three, four days, mm -hmm. record the stuff, send it down to Dusty and, and Jake in LA. And, and till we have enough compiled where we put an album together, I'd like to get right on it. And the interesting thing, it, you kind of tweaked my memory. When I was talking to Bruce, he he said, I always felt like we should have done Strychnine the way you guys did it. And uh, I said, well, I always felt like we should have done Cadillac Ranch the way you did it. Because I love that song, Bruce. And he said, we'll do it. You guys should do it. <laughs> no, no, no. That's an that's a iconic song. I can't do that. <laughs> Well, Rob, thanks so much for talking with me today on our Coolest Conversations. Well, it's, it's been my pleasure and my honor, and I'm, I'm certainly look forward to, I know you, and I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing you and the guys in Nashville. That's right. The Woggles will play the Nashville Boogie as well. Uh, but, you know, first off, good luck tonight in Charlotte. And uh, we're going to leave now with your version of I Don't Need No Doctor. Off of This is the Sonics and Little Stevens Underground Garage. <laughs> 